Hey, everybody. Welcome to the green room of Disrupt TV. Here's where we get to actually meet our guests early. I'm Ray Wong, uh, co-host and co-founder of Disrupt TV with my amazing co-host, Vala Afshar. He's over here. And of course, our great producer, Elle. So she's in the middle. But we will introduce our guests in reverse order. Uh, just tell us where you're coming in from. And of course, a little bit about what you're talking about today. Adam? Hey, I'm Adam Nathan. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Almanac, which is a collaboration platform for modern teams similar to GitHub, and I'm calling in from San Francisco. Uh, yes, one my son uses. He's like, this is amazing. All right, Neha, where are you coming in from? What are you talking about? Hey, everyone. Happy Friday. So I'm calling in from the Boston, Massachusetts area, and um, today I'll be sharing key findings from our 2023 Wellness Barometer Survey research, which is hot off the press. Spoiler alert, economic concerns are skyrocketing, and they're having a sizable impact on both employee and employer well-being. So more to come. Oh, more. Okay, Josephine, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Hi, um, I'm calling in from Copenhagen, and I'm going to talk about my new book, Power Parameter, Manage Synergy, mm -hmm. Not Just Time and Money. So it's a book about leadership and collaboration. Next level. Very cool. All right. We'll turn it back over to you, Elle, and we'll see you guys all live in a few seconds. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray is a regular television business and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Bloomberg. I see him on TV just about every day. He's also one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWAG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Afshar, the chief digital evangelist of Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, but more importantly, his new book, Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success, will be available this September and can be pre-ordered today on Amazon. But it's not about us. It's our amazing folks, and we've got executives around the world paying attention to every one of Vala's inspirational, insightful tweets. And of course, when he's not keynoting, hosting, or leading business events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business outlets like Bloomberg. And more importantly, um, of course, writing about these articles about what's been happening here on ZDNet. So, but who do we have today to kick it off? We only have amazing authors that come on our show, and there's no exception here. Josephine Campbell, author of Power Barometer, Managing Personal Energy, Not Just Time and Money. Josephine is co-founder of Campbell Co., a top leadership consulting firm for multinational companies. Josephine inspires and coaches leaders, teams, and talents in large organizations such as McDonald's, Deloitte, uh, and, and, and many others. Josephine's approach combines practical and the pragmatic. A four-time, Ray, check this out, a four-time jiu-jitsu champion, Josephine is wow. particularly interested in developing personal leadership in difficult circumstances, such as often the case in the modern work life. You can follow Josephine on Twitter at J-O-S-E-F-I-N-E-K, sorry, C-A-M-P, Josephine Camp. Welcome, Josephine, to the Shrap TV. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. 
You are our first uh, champion jiu-jitsu guest, and we've interviewed over a thousand ah, people. Wow, so that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Go ahead. Hey, we're really happy to have you here, and a lot of amazing insights uh, on leadership here. Uh, let's start with something that's fundamental. Uh, what is the awareness matrix, and, and why? Why do you emphasize on that? Yeah. So. The way I organized my book is around the awareness matrix, and it's also a way for anyone to navigate in what happens inside themselves during difficult collaboration and leadership situations. And once you understand what happens inside yourself, it's also easier for you to understand others. So it'll put a different perspective to what is really going on in these situations. So, so self-awareness is. is necessary components in order to make sure you maximize your energy uh is, is that is that is that why the connection matters so much well no it's a little bit the other way around personal energy is the fuel of the brain so you need energy to have self-awareness without self-awareness okay. you will lose what is happening with you and other people in difficult challenging situations Okay. okay, so we human beings have um, some weaknesses, the way we are designed. And one of them is that no matter how humble we are, we tend to think the most of ourselves. Our self-image is how we are when we are at our best. But what really is happening to us in many times is that we, we become unaware of what is really happening. And our actions and thoughts will run on the autopilot it's less energy consuming. So the brain has designed our way of being in a way where we'll do a lot of things automatic without awareness. But when we are in challenging times, as we are experiencing these years with a lot of unpredictability, mm -hmm. um, a lot of changes, some companies are experiencing a lot of growth. You know, growth can be challenging. Um, some people are experiencing stress. Uh, if you look at mental health, it's not going so well. Um, and, and then having to deal with difficult situations and people who have all sorts of challenges in their life, we are not at our best all the time. So a lot of things that are being done and said at work and in a meeting is running from the automatic, the automatic behaviors. You know, that's a great point. And, and one of the things that uh, you talk about, the fact that, you know, people often use this statement as made famous by the Godfather in 1972. It's not personal. It's business. Uh, and you say that's a myth. It is most definitely personal. And often we feel that way as well. Uh, why is that? Well, I'm so happy that you recognize that perspective. And it is because you as a person is the tool, the medium for leading, or for collaboration. And even if you're a technical expert, it's you as a person who is conveying your technical expertise or communicating what you know when you're collaborating with other people. So you can never look beyond what is the human being. The human being is a part of the equation of how the technical expertise come across. So, so how, how does how does someone convey the personal nature of leadership? I mean, the people that I uh, admire and I work for and I felt I was committed to were people that I that I trusted, people that I respect, uh, people that showed they had interest in my success. So there was some level of reciprocity. Uh, when you're advising leaders of these big companies, McDonald's, Deloitte, these folks, like you said, who are extraordinary people that have accomplished a lot are well-educated so they've done many things right in their life uh, how do you coach them to to show perhaps vulnerability or whatever the components are so that they're not just treating business like it's just business but they're actually creating meaningful relationships well first of all um i never have ambitions on behalf of the people i coach but I will support them on their ambitions, right? And um, I will challenge them if I can see if they're not being true to themselves, yeah. or I will challenge them if I see that there could be perspectives that they are missing out. So it's in that process that often they 
um, have to face the fact that business is personal or that uh, maybe uh, there are some emotions, either their own or those that belong to other people that plays a part in the situations we're dealing with or that some of the challenges has to do with that people are just exhausted, that they're, they're done. You know, they cannot, like, for example, if I work with people who, who, who use Agile, some, um, some chapter leads think you can run one sprint after the other, right? And I'm like, so there's no time to, to recharge between the sprints. And any athlete knows that once you ride, run a marathon, what do you need to do before and after? What do, you, what do you need to do? Rest. <laughs> yes, you need to recharge. Recover. You need to recharge. Recover. Yeah. Recharge. Recover. Yep. Yeah. So it's the same for business people. So when you won four championships uh, in jujitsu, yeah. was the relationship between your coach personal? Did you did you feel a connection, and that's how you were able to achieve your you know becoming a champion? In in a Japanese martial arts such as jujitsu, we have senseis. And so Sensei is my master. Uh, have you watched the movie Karate Kid? Many times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Many so times. do you remember Mr. Mr. Miyagi? A hundred percent. Yes. I even yeah, watched so the Netflix series okay. uh, Cobra Kai. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Mr. Miyagi, he's a Sensei, right? Yes. And I also had a great Sensei. And he taught me how to prepare. He also taught me how to recharge before um, I was going to... Uh, participate and he also taught me how to keep calm during a championship right so we have this fight flight response which is the same thing as when you are unaware in the awareness matrix i have a green zone and i have a red zone and the red zone is when you're unaware it's when the flight fight response is activated so do you think mr miyaki he would be in the red zone or in the green zone when when kicking ass <laughs> he lived in the green zone all the time yeah. yes yes exactly <laughs> so that's what also what i'm trying to to do and what i'm trying to practice and that is part of what i pass on when we teach and train and coach executives that's great that's, that's great you know but in, in in that matrix that you have right um mm -hmm. you know money quality time right and the reflection against that um one, one of the things that you talk about is is really how you raise the energy level mm -hmm. um and i think that's just as important right so what, what's important how five ways or a couple ways we can actually raise the energy level um you know in terms of what we do and and really up level that because people do respond to that energy level and that also yeah. feeds on itself uh, as well and i think that's what you're trying to point out here yes very true ray very true so um First of all, I imagine that you and many of the listeners have many meetings on video calls and probably back to back sometimes, right? Yeah. So uh, one interesting thing you can do is to take a little break in between those calls. You know, even just a minute can make a difference. But a break is not looking at your cell phone or answering an email. A break is a real break with closed eyes. And I'm serious oh, about the closed I eyes. Know, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. So there's actually a really interesting uh, Microsoft study. There's a, a lab at Microsoft where they put sensors on, on, the, on the head of um, 14 people on a Monday. And one Monday, they were having back-to-back -back meetings with no breaks. And the other Monday, they were testing them. They had 10 minutes of break between their calls mm -hmm. where they did a meditation exercise. And you can see from the brain scannings of the first day that they're completely red. <laughs> At the end of the day, they're, they're, the brains are worn out. But on the other images, they're still like blue and green and nice at the end of the day. So I know you cannot meditate 10 minutes every time you have a 50 minutes call. So what we do is we do little hacks where you do something for one minute or 30 seconds and it could be like people have different things to respond well to but it could be like just closing your eyes and and relaxing and staying still for 30 seconds some people are very comfortable with that some people get anxious from that <laughs> they should do something else right <laughs> 
so when we train and, 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 and coach, we, we try a few different um, techniques and then we'll see what people respond to. But very often when I guide it, um, there, there are certain things that people do respond well to. Do you want to try it? <laughs> I wish we could try it between guests. But <laughs> we usually do between guests. We don't tell anybody. <laughs> we can try it here now if you want. I mean, the, the, the human factors lab was, was a pretty interesting study. I mean, I, I, I yeah, do remember yeah. seeing that. It was, it was about the green and yeah. the blue. Uh, yeah. but, but the thing that was interesting to me about the study was the fact that when you transition between meetings, that's where the stress actually occurs, right? As you're actually building up to the next meeting, uh, you, you get yeah. a little bit more stressful. And, and how you manage that energy is probably uh, one of the things that you're talking about here. So, Yeah. So you need to learn how to let go of things in your brain in a healthy way so you can focus on other things. And so, so one of the things that is stressful is because people are still full of thoughts and reflections from the last meeting. And it you know, becomes a little messy inside your head once you're in two or three meetings at the same time. But, but, but that means you should increase your mental agility. Like, like in jiu-jitsu, you should have that level of mental agility. Um, is this really about increasing that capacity to be able to do that? It's, the brain is not capable of doing two things at the same time. Well, so, Hard. yeah, um, <laughs> damn it. I wish. Hard. Yeah, I wish. So, so multitasking his whole life. This is bad news for Ray. This is, I know, this is bad news. I'm I don't know what's going on to, to I'm brain. sorry to be the messenger, Ray. <laughs> so, no, so what? Go ahead, please. No, no, it's okay, Vala. What do you want to say? No, I, will, will this also lead to us being happier, more content, oh, yeah. sm smiling more, just being more grateful of everything around us is, is will it lead to gratitude and, and empathy and happiness yeah and staying young <laughs> oh, okay we're in we definitely need another 30 no, I'm, actually, I'm, I'm serious i'm serious i'm serious because when you are in the red zone you produce cortisol adrenaline and no adrenaline stress hormone hormones right they, they wear out they wear you out they wear your brain out they wear out your nerve system, they make you tired, right? They drain you. When you're in the green zone, you produce another hormone, DHEA. It's the vitality hormone. If you ever been shopping um, lotions for your wife, like facial creams, you will see sometimes they add DHEA in, in, in the lotions, but you can produce it just by being in the green zone and recharging. Oh. All right, really? well, all going into the green zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so really? I'm actually trying to be in the green zone also when I'm working. I'm, I'm in the green zone right now. Awesome. Uh, well, the last thing we want is to put our guests in a red zone. So, this is good news for us. Thank you. Yeah, we're not a red zone kind of show, so we're, not we're a red okay. Zone show. No, you're not. <laughs> it's fun being here. Thanks. We're here with Josephine Campbell, author of Power Barometer. Uh, more importantly, this book is talking about how to manage personal energy, not just time and money. Of course, this book came out in May, and you can get it where books are sold. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And you can follow her on Twitter at Josephine Camp underscore, I think. Thank you very much. And on LinkedIn. And on I'm active on LinkedIn, so please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll be really happy to hear from you. Yes, awesome. the LinkedIn newsletter. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. For thank up you for having me. Cheers. I want to be in the green zone the whole time because I'm telling oh, you're you. You're always in the green zone. No, look at all these grays. Look at all Ready to go. <laughs> I used to be in green all the time. I don't know. No, I, I am. All right. Actually, nothing. Ah, you know. Okay. Could be the uh, stress that we're hearing out there. So, listen, you know. in, 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 in this hyper-connected knowledge-sharing economy where your culture is your brand, we have an amazing guest because she's responsible for brand and people. And that's pretty awesome, in my opinion, as a former CMO who never had the opportunity of being you know, a, a people success leader. But Nihar Marchandani, CMO and head of people at Brightplan. Nia leads to marketing and people functions at Bright Plan, a leader in total financial wellness. Bright Plan's mission is to make financial success attainable for everyone. Nia has extensive experience in B2B and SaaS marketing and HR, and her career spans global enterprise technology companies as well as innovative startups. Previously, Nia was CMO of Topia, a cloud global talent mobility company. Over her career, Nia has held senior roles at companies such as Cisco, Adobe, Ring Central, and Instant Logic. You can follow Nia on Twitter at NM 
I-R-C-H-I. Welcome, Mia, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Bala and Ray. It's great to be back. I hope you're in a green zone. I well, I was going to tell you, are we going to take a 10 minute nap or yes. yoga? <laughs> we can do yoga. Bob. I know this is when we do this zoom in shots on you. That's when I'm doing my naps. Don't tell anyone. So, yeah. awesome. But hey, your, your company just recently announced the third annual wellness barometer. And uh, you were kind of giving me a sneak peek earlier about what might be in it. Uh, let's start there. Uh, and then as we do the Zoom thing here, you know, you'll notice that I'm actually taking a nap. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> hey, we're, hey, we're taking naps. Keep going. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I hope I'm not going to put you to sleep. But, uh... Not at all. Not at all. So, so tell us more. Wellness Barometer, why did it get started? And what did we discover this year? So. Yep, yep. Thanks for the question. So let me just give you a little bit of context of the research itself. So we surveyed 1,400 uh, U.S.-based folks across a um, mix of C-suite, HR decision makers, as well as employees at large enterprises, so organizations with 1,000-plus employees. Um, as you rightfully stated, this was our third barometer survey. The first year we did it in 2021, which was when COVID hit. And so there were some interesting trends that surfaced there around workforce safety, flexibility. Um, employees had a great deal of trust in their employers because employers were really stepping up during this global crisis. Last year, we saw that um, the focus shifted to rising inflation and just the overall state of the economy. Um, and from an, from an employer perspective, if you recall, we were talking about the great resignation, quiet quitting, those terms you're hearing much less um, this time around. So this year, let me just, you know, um, I, I, if I can, I'd love to give you just a bit of a rapid fire on maybe the top three to six top findings. Would that be all right? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great place to start. So. Okay, perfect. So uh, number one, I would say, as I said, economic concerns have skyrocketed. We're seeing highest level of employee stress. 92% of employees are stressed about their finances. As you can imagine, inflation, market volatility, potential recession around the corner. Um, financial preparedness continues to be low. Only 18% financial literacy. 85% of people have debt. And only it's over a third have little or no emergency savings at all. So if you think about that in the context of the current market, um, that is pretty stressful. So this financial stress is impacting all areas of well-being, um, relationships, emotional well-being, physical well-being. Um, and I love what Josephine talked about, right? Like if we could all be in the green zone across all of our uh, aspects there um, that could be powerful, but it's not just about an individual's well-being. It's impacting employers in a very, very tangible way. So um, employees have less productivity, less engagement at work, and we found um, that U.S. employers are losing nearly two hundred billion dollars. Yes, two hundred billion dollars annually wow. in lost productivity. This is a very different outlook than when you were on here last, right? What, yes. what, what, what changed? You know, what happened? Other than we've been trying to psych ourselves into recession since May 2021 and 22, but that's all another story. Yeah, I think a lot of things have shifted. Obviously, the economic market conditions have had a huge impact for sure, Ray. Um, I think the other part that has impacted is just what employers are going. So it's not just about employees dealing with financial impacts, but employers are dealing with it too. I mean, just think about, you know, um, cost cutting, budget cuts, benefit cuts, uh, in some unfortunate cases, layoffs as well. So so companies are grappling with the same. And I think that is, is putting employees, that's having a toll on employees. Um, and trust is breaking down, by the way. This year we saw yes. that, yeah, trust has gone down dramatically. We saw a 20% drop year over year from last year to this year which is pretty substantial. Yeah, the, the survey found that uh, in, in terms of, you know, source of stress, uh, the respondents talked about high inflation, uh, potential recession, rising interest rates and market volatility. And certainly, uh, you know, uh, cost reductions have demonstrated market volatility for the past year. 
The trust piece that you reference is the stat that kind of stood out to me most, uh, and it's a very robust report with lots of findings, but only 63% of workers trust human resources and upper management. Last year, that number was 83%. So a, a, a dramatic drop as far as trust in the workplace. And only six out of 10 uh, believe leaders at their companies are empathetic. So distress could be very much a source of not just you know high inflation and, and market volatility, but it may be just the way we're as leaders how we're treating managing our workforce. As someone who's responsible for the brand of your company as well as the success of your employees, which I think is an awesome responsibility, you have the most important job at your company. And if your CEO is listening, I I mean that. <laughs> what what advice do you have? to business leaders in terms of, there was a 20 point drop in one year and most people, or it's almost flip of a coin, you know, six out of 10, uh, they, they don't trust HR and senior management. So what, what, could, what should we be doing better to help our employees stay, get into that green zone and stay there? Yeah, it's a great question, Bala. And, and so, you know, first I think we have to kind of get to the uh, the, the core reason for the trust or the breakdown of the trust. And if, if we just think about our world today, there's so many things going on right now that, yeah. that are impacting trust. So going back to what I mentioned earlier, you know, with, uh, during COVID, employers were doing anything and everything that they possibly could to support yeah. their employees. Right. And at that point in time, we saw trust being very high because employees felt that their employers really cared about their well-being. Now, if you think about it, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction, right? And and in terms of employers having to scale back, as I mentioned, they're cutting budgets, uh, reducing benefits, and in, in many cases, they're laying off employees as well. Um, it's also a bit about how they're doing it, whether they're doing it with um, I mean, employees are not stupid, right? Like they understand what's happening in the market. It's yeah. how you do it. You yeah. do it with empathy. You do it with open communication. Um, so there are all of those different things. The other thing we saw coming out of the survey is that employees are feeling like their companies are putting a higher emphasis on profits versus mm -hmm. their well-being. And it is being viewed as a cost. So the one thing I, I, you know, if there's one thing people should take away from our conversation today, I would say that is that that is a fallacy. You should not be thinking about um, employee well-being as a cost. You should be thinking about it as an investment in your people. It is going to give you an ROI and a return because you're reducing costs. You remember that $200 billion number yeah. I talked about? If you invest in your employees in the right way, they're going to be more productive. And that means that you as an organization are going to have less of an impact. So, um, you know, the, the other thing I would say in terms of impacts on, on trust, a lot of companies are saying back into the office, right? And, and, sure. and, and that I think is another potential for lack of trust. But to, to come back to your fundamental question of like, what can employers do to gain back that trust? Um, transparent communications, I would say, and, and, and being very empathetic is extremely important. Listening to your employees and the pulse of your employees because things are rapidly shifting and, and not just listening, but acting with intention. And if you're not able to act, then being very clear and transparent about why you cannot do the things that you would like to do. And then ultimately, yeah, sorry, Molly. No, as, as you were saying, all it's so important, but I, I, in my mind, I was thinking personally, like in my 20s and 30s as a working professional, I didn't have financial literacy. Like I wish my employers, when I left graduate school and even 10, 15 years after graduate school, and your surveys say that 75% of employees are dissatisfied with financial benefits available, available to them, and many of them aren't using them. I'm not sure if I knew uh, the services that were available to me. Again, young, out of grad school, nose to the ground, just get the job done. All I thought about was meet, meet deadlines, deliver good work, and do it on budget on time. I don't, nobody proactively reached out to me and said, hey, let me help you figure out what you're going to do with this 
bonus or the stock options or you know so i i really think i missed a big opportunity early in my career uh and i'm, I'm saying probably a decade in my career yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just the first year or two so i just worry think buy a car go to las vegas you'll be fine well i did the, I did the first part <laughs> i didn't i didn't do the second part <laughs> but I, I just you know when i look at your survey and i reflect just on my own experience i'm like man i missed a great opportunity to build strong foundational uh, and, and actually put myself in the green zone because my employer and I never really discussed financial literacy and, and they probably had programs and I just didn't know about it. So, uh, yes. but, but your survey really highlights that this is still a problem. It's not just it is. Like, it's still it's not just you, and it's not just yeah. you, Paula. I mean, I, it's the same story for me earlier in my career, right? Where I I didn't invest in my four hundred one k, for example, I for for quite a few years because I didn't understand it, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Ray was well, maybe Ray's smarter than all of us. No, but... no, Ray, Ray is a genius, but. <laughs> <laughs> For the I, I don't know. I maxed like my four hundred one k because I wanted the matching deduction, but okay, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> so uh, we had our son do the same thing. I mean, he's he's in an internship. He, he maxed six thousand. He maxed the six thousand. His employer was like, "What the heck are you doing? Like, do you do you like do you, what? Do you need this money? What's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> That's the employer telling him that. I was like. Yeah, He's like, HR wants to talk to me, Dad. I'm like, okay. But see, but that's the importance, right? Like you earn money. And, and if, as you said, you could go to Las Vegas, you could buy a car, you could do a gazillion different things. But are you clear about what your goals are and where do you want to put your money towards those goals? Financial education is like the core. That's the starting point. We don't teach it in schools. And so, you know, in most schools. Um, and so employers have a really important role to play, uh, Vala, in the example that you shared. And by the way, Salesforce is a customer of, of ours, so I do know very well that we are- I'm in the green zone now. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find out what you have, Vala. <laughs> it just took a while to get here. But <laughs> Come on, that's all myth, you know? You can't spend it when you're dead. You only live once, come on. So. <laughs> I do, listen, you know what I drive, Ray. Uh, so, yeah. I'm not going to go. Now, given all this incredible AI-led economy, we, we, all of us have recognized in the, certainly the last five years, uh, certainly for me, five, five to ten years, the power of analytics and data and artificial intelligence. And, and so in terms of consulting uh, folks in terms of their financial literacy, and future have you seen dramatic enhancements in how folks are developing their personal finances and improving their literacy with with the technology that they have the ability to use yes i i i 100 agree that um you know data and ai plays a really important and critical role in the context of one's financial well-being so you know data if i can just talk about the various aspects so from an employer perspective, because as I said earlier, employers have to support and partner with their employees on their uh, personal financial journey. It's no longer just a personal problem. It's an employer's problem, too, because of the productivity piece that I talked about. So data is critical in, in uh, giving you a strong pulse from an HR and an employer perspective on what where your employees need the most help. So if there's a student debt uh, issue with your employee base, then the data is going to show you that, in which case, especially in our current market environment, we can't be doing everything. So we can be very, very targeted with the focus and the support that we provide our employees. So that's one use case. Um, and making and, and also um, making a strong business case for the need for this, right? Because it's not just about Yes, we're helping employees. That is the right thing to do for your employees, but it's also the right thing to do for the business for the reasons that I talked about earlier. It can also lead to high turnover, right? Absenteeism and all of those different critical cases. Um, and if I could, I'd love to give you just a, a, an example to kind of bring it home. So uh, one, of our, one of our customers called Bread Financial, they're a very forward-thinking, uh, tech-forward financial wellness, I'm sorry, financial services firm, and um, they have a very heavy call center environment. Um, and their employees, who they call associates, and, you know, were feeling a lot of stress 
probably from people yelling at them on the phones or whatever that might be. But when they started to dig in, they realized that financial stress was a huge part of the reason. And it was impacting you know, them in ways like absenteeism. They were taking higher leaves of absence. They were speaking of 401ks, they were pulling money out of their 401ks. Wow. And so um, you know, uh, Brad decided to roll out um, a solution that would give their associates a single view of their finances, what we were talking about, Bob. You know, you get your paycheck, what are your goals? How are you investing? You know, the financial literacy and the education aspect of it talking to a human advisor that can help kind of amplify and and validate your plan so all of those different things at the end of the day they saw lots of different impacts but it's important to tie your impact to the business so one data point um, that i'll share with you is that they saw a over a 30 percent higher uh, retention rate for folks wow. that were using the solution versus those that were not so again, another uh, strong use case for data. And it, it shouldn't be your point of view versus my point of view, right? The data and, speaks. You know, uh, the, reason, the, the, the reason we love our parents is because they loved us first. So when a company shows, <laughs> when a company shows they care about their employees and they generously offer programs and a single glass pane view of your finances and help you achieve more wealth, that's, you know, that's, Company showing you love first. So it doesn't surprise me that there's a 30 point, which is significant, by the way, as someone who ran call centers for 10 years in my career, uh, the biggest negative impact to a call center is high attrition. Uh, so you lose institutional knowledge, you lose relationships with the clients, you lose just the chemistry that exists when you bring a new person into the you know, pit, bullpit, uh, uh, you know, the, the call center environment. So that's a great example of the benefits of, uh, of helping employees gain better financial literacy. Go ahead, Ray. Well, speaking about that, I mean, let's let's get to the raw source of the data, right? That's a very important part here. And uh, I mean, one of the things that your survey actually showed was this disconnect, right, between what employees think is going on and what employers think is going on. And you know, this this is an important piece, right? If your data is that off. Right. Like what's the cause of that? What's what's happening? Is it survey fatigue? Is it people just don't really want to speak up? Like what, what's happening? So so I think the you know, no offense to pulse surveys, pulse surveys have a place. But, you know, you're pulse surveying your employees once a year or once in six months. And think about the rapid shifts in the market today and, and employees are right in the throes of it. So so we need real time data. Right, and and we need real time data to to kind of tell us where we need to focus. So, lots of disconnects around financial um, DEI, fair pay is another area of disconnect that we saw. Uh, trust that we talked about as well, and and you know, Vali, you said this beautifully, which is at the heart of it all. It's all about culture and a culture of care. And if you do that, and your employees feel that you you care about them genuinely, that you know, increases trust levels and well-being all across. This is awesome. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, this is a very, very good update from the last time we connected. Neha Merchandani, CMO and head of people at Right Plan. And of course, helping everyone think about their financial health and financial wellness. So thank you so much for being thank here. You. Thanks yeah, for yeah. having me. All right. That's great. Uh, you know, eye-opening, lack of trust, uh, just a... Vala, you know that thing about employers that you're talking about? Like, I, I had an abusive employer, and you know, I went back three times. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, I think, is someone who enjoys spending time in the red zone. Okay, our next guest, uh, you know, this is if you play baseball, this is the cleanup hitter spot where a big brain comes and hits a grand slam and just expands all of our minds. Adam Nathan is CEO of Almanac. After spending time at some of the most complex organizations and companies in the world, including White House. Apple, Lyft, Adam realized he was spending more time coordinating work than actually doing it. So taking inspiration from how developers work in GitHub and designers work in Figma, Adam founded Almanac to build a tool to help teams collaborate in documents and structure and transparency. Almanac enables remote teams to write, approve, and organize documents. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam P. Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N. Welcome, Adam, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. Good to be here. Good to have you. 
Hey, thanks a lot. Um, looking at your background, you've worked at some amazing companies, right? From Apple to Lyft to you know, some financial services companies. They were all very different culturally, right? Super siloed, not a lot of sharing of information to let's throw everybody on at once, right? And so, so you've experienced like the, that transition of how modern teams have been working together. Uh, and and I, it looks like you've learned a lot from that and you're sharing from that. How should modern teams work together and what was important for you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't think I, I knew the answer. What was clear is that we don't need another tool uh, to try and improve how we work. Um, and, and also that uh, work itself is, is pretty broken. Uh, you know, it was broken before COVID, but uh, since then, it, it's very clear that where we work has changed, but how we work hasn't. And so teams are experiencing uh, a ton of burnout, um, a ton of chaos at work, uh, people just not being able to get stuff done. Uh, and so before we started building Almanac, the question we, were, we really asked is, how should we be working you know, in this new modern context in which we all now live? Uh, and so over the past four years, we've done 5,000 interviews with really the best teams on the internet, companies like Amazon and Netflix and Stripe. And we were really curious to try and figure out, um, how have you mastered collaboration uh, in this brave new world? Um, what specifically are you doing? Uh, how did you discover it before everyone else? And and how can we abstract it really into an approach that any team can use regardless of their function or size or location? Um, and so we put all of our research together into what we call the modern work method. Um, it's available for free. And, and what we largely found was regardless of what uh, a team does or what the, the purpose of the company is or where it's located, um, the best teams on the internet, teams that are working the fastest, delivering the most value, um, work with a lot more structure, a lot more transparency and way fewer meetings uh, than everybody else. Way fewer meetings. I love that. Okay. I know. That's so, the winner right so, there. That's, that's the winner. <laughs> so yeah. so our, our, our last guest revealed that there was a significant 20% drop in trust uh, from 80% people trusting HR and their leaders last year to only 60%, 83 to 63 this year. Uh, and, and, and so your modern work method, did, it, did, did the study of the 5,000 interviews and research uh, identify what are some what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of remote work because I think when the pendulum swung to everybody can work from home obviously because of there was a deadly pandemic and you had no choice so everybody was on the same page work from home don't come into the physical office and then eventually the pendulum swung to where we are now where you know there's a strong emphasis whether it's productivity EBITDA revenue whatever the catalyst of having people have a presence in the office whether it's three days, four days, five days, depending on the function. So can you talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages of how these world-class companies are able to conduct work remotely? Yeah, well, first, I just want to correct the record on that. You know, I think there's there has been a very loud push, uh, especially in the New York Times and from, as I call them, old white guys on Twitter uh, <laughs> for return to the office. But if you actually look at the data on this, um, yeah. remote work and hybrid work as a percent of the workforce have actually continued to grow even after the end of, you know, the COVID era restrictions in September, 2022. Uh, What's the percentage? COVID, is, it, is it about 30% remote? What's the percentage? What's yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it depends on how you measure it, but, um, okay. you know, if you look at white collar professional jobs, uh, yeah. which are, you know, jobs in media, entertainment, technology, sure. business and finance before the pandemic, about 22% of the workforce was working in a remote or hybrid fashion. Today, that number is 66%. Wow. Uh, at the wow. peak of COVID, it was 62%. So it's actually continued to grow as a percent awesome. of the workforce even yeah. after then. So, you know, I, I don't love this. I think this debate between, you know, office versus remote is, is a tired one because if you, if you think about remote work as internet work, um, you realize that uh, it, it is a disruptive and inexorable trend, uh, just like our consumer lives have moved from, you know, doing shopping in person, hanging out in person to now e-commerce and social media. Uh, and, and how permanent that that uh, part of our lives now is. I think the same thing is happening to work and to the enterprise. Um, working online, working on the internet is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, and and so the, the, it's. I think the questions we're asking here are almost the wrong ones because uh, both both theory and data don't support this idea that you know life is going to return to how it was. We will, and and that gets to your question on you know what's the advantages of of what I call internet work. Um, you know, for individual workers, it's obviously flexibility and freedom. You can work when you want to, you can work where you want to, you can work how you want to. Um, and, you know, that gives people a lot more time to get into 
focus and flow, um, balance their lives better between work and their family and friends and hobbies. And I think that's why CEOs and owners are pushing back so much. There's, you know, it's just like, I think another chapter in this tension we've always had in capitalism between, um, you know, capital and labor and, and who controls the leverage in that equation. I think uh, in this case, labor has gotten, um, you know, broad new freedoms. And I think uh, for, you know, CEOs and for people who own real estate, maybe some elected officials even, uh, you know, there's, there's I think, um, discomfort with uh, how this new normal is going to work out because there's not the same sense of control anymore over people's time and location. Um, you know, the last 50, 70 years, uh, managers have been managing their presence, you know, butts and seats. Did you attend meetings? Yeah. Not only that, was that all correlated with effectiveness, um, just because yeah. you were you know, in an office and you were actually doing a good job, just because you were speaking in a meeting didn't mean you had good ideas. Um, you know, so, so management in the past, I don't think was really correlated to, to growth uh, or, or value delivery. Um, but uh, I think that's where this tension is coming from. You know, the, I think the other silly thing about remote is that remote is not a place, you know, it's the absence of one. And I think what we've seen in the data <laughs> is that uh, remote work and network really exposes how teams are really functioning. Uh, what, what we've seen happen is that uh, well-managed teams tend to do better in remote settings because they already have good systems and structures and processes in place there. There's high trust. Uh, and, and conversely, teams that were dysfunctional before don't have the theatricality of the office to cover up like how poorly things were going. And so all, so the, the dysfunction is, is exposed. Uh, and, and I think teams um, that don't have trust, that don't have good management systems in place are often the ones faced with this choice of, hey, do we wanna improve how we're working or do we wanna kind of revert, ignore it and, and go back to the office where we can just ignore it again. And I think that's what you're seeing with like Elon Musk types, <laughs> um, you know, bosses that, that clearly don't know how to operate in a distributed environment who, who would prefer the control um, that, that an office creates rather than, um, you know, giving teams power and flexibility to produce business value as fast as possible. He turned 52 yesterday. So I don't know. He's, he's not quite old white guy. He's, you know, but he's getting there. We're trying to help him get back to his home. So he'll get the Mars yeah. one. Yeah. I love the fact you use the word flow though, because that is what it's all about. I mean, flow is all around us. We just find clever ways of disrupting it. And like commuting to work when you can be done at home and giving you safe, quiet space to get shit done. I just think that, you know, uh, some of these folks that are advocating for going back to whatever before COVID, they're, they're just disrupting flow. And, and, uh, and uh, we, we, we have to find ways to not, you know, it was, I was, a, was it Clay Christensen, Ray, in Innovator's Dilemma? He said, you may hate gravity, but gravity doesn't care. Like this decentralized remote work, you may hate it, but it's it's the future. Like I don't, yeah. I don't quite. I think there, I think there is some of it. I, I would yeah. actually counter a little bit by saying, uh, if we start with the fundamental piece of respecting each other's time, then we'll get to a very different result, sure. right? And how people need to get work done. Sometimes you do if you're in high stress situations all the time. And I'm not going to defend Elon in that way, but having known enough people that work for him, every day is a stressful situation and everyone needs to be all hands on deck, and, and which is kind of the culture that's over there. But but one of the things that can do, be used, as, as you know, to kind of help um, reduce that is, is to talk about, you know, the culture of writing, right? And, and you do something very interesting. And I spent a lot of time um, going through your methodology with structured drafting. Right. And I thought that was actually a pretty interesting tool because what it does is it, it's about respect of others time as well as crafting your concept and your ideas before you start blabbing crap. You know, <laughs> I thought that was an amazing thing. Talked about that, the culture of writing, the structured drafting, why that's so important inside an organization's culture. And you mentioned Amazon at the beginning. That's a company that I believe has a culture of writing but can you can you give us examples of perhaps companies that have this culture of writing and how yeah they... and that's not a low stress environment either so no. yeah i mean i think amazon's a famous example of this and, and jeff bezos mandated you know the um the two page or seven page memo uh, before any meeting uh, bridgewater is another example of an organization uh with you know extremely high performance that i think got there through having cultures a uh, culture and, and decision making processes based on writing um, and, you know, I think there's this, uh, this misconception that um, the only way to get stuff done in stressful environments is to, uh, like, get everyone together and create a lot of chaos and move really fast. Uh, you know, there's a saying in the, um, in the Marines that uh, slow means smooth and smooth means fast. 
Um, and a lot of these organizations that I'm talking about that we've, that we've interviewed, who are many of whom are our customers, um, it, it, when you actually talk to them or you observe them, they have really calm working environments. Like there's not a lot of chatter. Um, everything feels really smooth. Everyone's really calm. And yet they're moving extremely fast, you know, way faster than their competitors in most cases. Uh, and, and that does come back in part to creating a culture of writing. Um, we've seen, you know, writing cultures, documentation cultures be present in, I don't know, two thirds of the, um, the highest performing companies we've talked to. And what that, you know, means practically is that these organizations always start with a doc before a meeting. Um, sometimes, the, sometimes the doc obviates the need for a meeting. And so, you know, even when there's a meeting and it's going off an agenda or a proposal that was first written in a doc that everybody's read beforehand, people have commented on. So it makes the synchronous time that they're spending way more effective and useful. Um, you know, these organizations are also doing like regular cleanups, Marie Kondo style of their calendars to understand uh, which recurring meetings, um, you know, aren't useful anymore. Often what happens in organizations that the back to back meetings people feel uh, it's just a, a an accumulation of things that were once useful, <laughs> uh, but that have outlived their usefulness and people are still just showing up to those meetings, um, you know, and, and wasting their time in them. And so uh, organizations, you know, start with documents, use documents to cancel meetings or not have them mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, and then they also store those documents in, you know, really good software that has great search or great organizational capabilities so people can find answers on their own and not, you know, need to ping people on Slack or schedule another meeting. And so documentation is really a way for people to um, obviously just not just craft good ideas, but process them more effectively, act on them uh, faster uh, and have more time to get shit done, as you said. I'm a yeah. big advocate. I mean, I'm actually making my team do that. We put them on two separate projects. We normally have our retreat. Everybody like, spouses off whatever their opinion is or whatever. We're actually getting to that drafting piece that's going on in the back end. So it's going to be very interesting to watch. But I only have yeah. one recurring meeting, which I've, I've, I've actually you know, capped, which is actually the show, Bala. This is it. I don't have any other recurring meetings. Hundred percent. That that that. This is my only recurring meeting on a weekly basis. Uh, I have Mary Kondo in my calendar. I love that. In, 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 yeah. No. Absolutely. Marie Kondo. I, I, I've always thought that you know reading has helped my writing, and then writing has helped my thinking. Uh, because anytime I sit down to pen an article, you know, like you have to have some level of expertise. You have to have clarity of mind. You have to have you know, quiet place. Um, so do you think that given like this explosive adoption and awareness of generative AI, where you can now have algorithms right on your behalf, it seems like you may be on a trajectory where you're outsourcing some of your thinking to large language models. But so if, if, if writing is what helps you develop deeper, more meaningful relationships with your remote workers, your internet workers, uh, what do you think is the impact of generative AI in, in producing large volumes of content, but it's 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 seamless and it's effortless and it's not necessarily maybe even sourced from you. You just are good at prompting and assessing the accuracy of it. That's essentially your role in the writing. What are your thoughts on Gen, Gen AI? Yeah, get better yeah. at drafting your prompts. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, the quick answer is that I think the best way to think about AI, and by that I mean LLMs, um, because you know AI has always been used as a term to mean frontier technologies, and what that means, you probably even a year from now will mean something different than uh, than today. Uh, you know, I think the the main thing LLMs are doing right now is producing fuzzy first drafts, and so they're scouring the whole internet, which means you know the average of everything out there to give you um, an answer to your question. And I think there's a difference here between productivity and collaboration. Um, like any technology, uh, like, the, you know, Steve Jobs called the personal computer a bicycle for your mind, I'd say uh, LLMs are kind of like a, a race car for your mind, where now, um, instead of just having, you know, Google to search answers, now we have a better chat-based interface that's going to get us, uh, it's going to look over a larger amount of information much faster and produce a better outcome. I, I think the productivity curve of what we can do when it comes to things like writing is going to move up into the right. But just like with Google, there's going to be some people who are really good at exploiting that technology. There's going to be some people uh, who like, you know, still can't use <laughs> uh, Google search to find basic information or don't know what Google Maps is. There's going to be, you know, so, so I think the average productivity of a person is going to move up. Um, but I think, you know, the uh, at least right now, and it's hard to predict what will happen in the future, um, there's going to be some people who um, are going to, you know, 
really be able to exploit this technology to their advantage. There's going to some, be some people who who yeah. fall behind. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing about teamwork and collaboration is that it's a deeply human exercise. You know, the, yeah. as I'm sure you know, you know, the human brain is constantly rewiring based on interactions it has with other people, because I can't predict that, you know, for example, you're going to be nodding your head right now, what I'm saying. And so um, we, do, we, you know, that, that's what makes collaboration so magical. We don't know what's ha what will happen when we get together to work on a problem together, what we might think of alone. And so uh, I think AI can help, uh, you know, AI can be almost like a collaborator in some ways, but I think the, uh, you know, all LLMs really are just looking at past information, past decisions, yeah. past knowledge to, yeah. to give you something right now. They're not a predictive model. Um, they don't know what we can do. And so I think in that way, um, the magic of human collaboration and human, human teamwork will always be there. I think sure. uh, what we do together might be more elevated because we have um, right. better technology to automate the overhead work. Uh, yeah. But it, it makes me excited to think about what um, what work looks like in the future because I think we will always have, <laughs> we being humans will always have a role there. Uh, it will just be, uh, I think, elevated and even more productive and more creative than what we're doing today. Makes sense. Hey, I want to go to your college and your path on being a founder. You're sitting on West Campus, Perkins Library, wondering <laughs> what's going on at Duke. And uh, how does that say you're off to being a founder? So, Yeah, it, you know, uh, as you said, stated, I, I went to Duke for undergrad uh, and I was a systems engineering major there. Um, and one of the reasons I went to Duke is because they have a really strong engineering school, a really strong policy school. Pratt, really that's amazing. Yeah, and, and uh, I've always been obsessed with how things work or, or how they don't work and also what individuals can do to change them. And so that's what I studied in college and was able to pull on multiple disciplines to, to examine things like global development. Um, and and throughout my career, I've been attracted to, as you said up front, uh, kind of institutions or spaces that uh, are extremely complicated, in some, some cases dysfunctional, whether it's the federal government or airlines or nonprofits or large tech companies. Um, and I, I think what we do now at Almanac, where we're, where we focus on how to make work better, that's the ultimate system, um, that we all spend a lot of time and energy on every single day. And, and the cool thing about work, things like productivity and collaboration is that there's always more we can do to make them better. They're, they're, the frontier is limitless. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm the kind of founder uh, where I, I probably couldn't have started just any company. Um, what we do at Almanac, where we're focused on, um, helping people work better, uh, you know, in, in this brave new world we now live in is, uh, I think, a specific outcome of of my interests and skills and and my background going back to Duke. That's awesome. Solving a problem that you care about. I mean, that's that that that's great. That's great. Yeah, Go we're ahead. here with Nathan, CEO of Almanac. More importantly, he's trying a new way for people to actually work together. Check it out. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam P. Nathan. Uh, more importantly, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, really give us some thought-provoking approaches to the future of work. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. Cheers. All right, stick around. We'll see you guys in the green room. Uh, Woo! I don't know what time it is, but it's been fast. <laughs> I think we should implement Josephine's advice in that between each guest, for 30 seconds, you and I close our eyes. We get our producer to play some calming music because... Now I know why I'm exhausted after an hour, because we get extraordinary people who are disruptors and trailblazers and come for 20 minute, 20 minute, 20 minute, rain on us with their nuggets of wisdom. And you should be super fatigued in a good way, uh, you know, after, after our show. So, hey, do me a favor and our audience a favor. Summarize Josephine, Niha and Adam's big takeaways in the last 60 minutes. Well, we do got some calming music here, so we can kind of get that going. Here we go. Here we go. And I'm going to close my eyes while you share your close thoughts. Close your eyes while I do that. We'll start talking about what's going on. We started out with Josephine, and I think one of the interesting things here is really about the fact that we need energy, right? And for us to recover and to do well, that energy is kind of important, right? Um, and that's really about the triangle that she was talking about. And and I think that's, that's kind of important. People have to feed on that energy, come up with that energy, a little bit about that from jujitsu all the way to here. Um, but, you know, as we're thinking about, you know, that wellness, that stress, what's going on. Um, I mean, this episode is really helping us, you know, rethink how we work, where we work, 
Um, and it started with that conversation around like how employees are feeling and it's kind of scary. And financial wellness is one of those factors that we don't think about. We think about mental health, we think about health, we think about how people are you know, able to access benefits. But, but I think we really got a lot uh, thinking about what's happening in the work environment and that financial stress numbers are only getting worse. Uh, and of course, Adam's really helping us think about how to rethink this, right? I mean, you know, I think we're going to hear a lot about flow over the next, uh, you know, few months. And, uh, you know, one of those interesting things is really about your rhythm, about how you get work done. Right. Today, it's very disruptive. Um, I made a point really thinking about the fact that we need to respect each other's time. And when you do do that, you take the time to learn something. When you do speak, when you get together, uh, you make it worth everyone's time as well. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff uh, in the culture of writing gets you there. These modern teams are changing. The way people work are changing. And especially if you think about, you know, um, from what a undergrad today entering the workforce thinks to what's happening in the workplace today. Um, you know, you can see that right away. I mean, the tools people use, the approaches they take, um, their view on how work gets done and the collaboration has definitely changed. But yeah, with that, the calming music goes away. I'm so sorry. And uh, yeah, we have to wrap up. All you. Yeah, listen, I, I wrote 66,000 words on flow. That's essentially what my book is all about. So I love the word. I love the meaning and the importance of flow and ultimately yeah if you can improve flow at home at work you can you can do more uh hence the title boundless uh our next uh, episode which will not be next week we're gonna take time off next week given fourth of july is in the middle of the week we're gonna be back on the following week which is july 14th and we have episode 329 on uh, july 14th with dr anthony Scrifagano, a global award-winning chief data scientist. We have Sharon McPherson, CEO of Green Jobs Machine. She's adjunct lecturer at the University of Cape Town, graduate school of business and faculty at Singularity University. And we have our, one of our favorite doctors, Dr. David Bray, back on the show. He's director of geotech centers and geotech commission. So we're gonna have, again, a show with a bunch of PhDs where Ray and I will uh, we'll, we'll share with our parents and both of our moms will tell us why we're not back in school getting our doctorates, <laughs> which, which, which I still get from my mom uh, on, a, on a monthly basis. When are you going back to school and getting your doctorate? So, so, Once you're done with the book, you'll be fine. They won't bug you again. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.